Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I'm Simon, uh, one of the elders in training here at uh, City Light. It's great to be able to lead us tonight. I'm going to open up the word in a minute. But um, before we get to a couple of announcements, I just thought it'd be good to, to read the word of God together. Um, historically, the people of God have met um, not just around the word, but they've declared the truths of God uh, together. And uh, we're going to say part of Psalm 102 together tonight. Um, I thought we might stand. Should we stand to do this? And if someone tall is in front of you, then just tell them to, I don't know, kneel down or something. I don't know. But, uh... Take a seat. <laughs> let's, uh, this is Psalm 102 from verse 12 through to 22. Uh, let's say it together. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favour her. The appointed time has come. Your servants hold stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory, he regards the prayer of the destitute, and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Praise God. Please be seated. Awesome. So you guys might recognize this passage as the one we read last week as well. Um, and for those of you who weren't here last week, it'll be the first time perhaps. Um, so it's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, his eyes could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he had seen the name named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his vision. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews, living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, who took him and brought him to the apostles, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fiercely in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Uh, please yeah, keep uh, Acts chapter 9 open in front of you as we continue on. Uh, last week, uh, we were sort of meant to do this chunk like officially, like City Light officially style. Uh, it was meant to be done over two weeks. Last week, I did the whole, like, one, like, verses 1 to 31. Um, and then I was like, well, what are we going to do? Like, you know, we've put another week in before we get to Easter. And, and uh, like with lots of sermons, right, um, uh, there's heaps of stuff you leave on the cutting room floor, as it were, that you can't say uh, in one sort of go. And there was heaps, I think there's stacks in this, this text, actually, which um, I thought would be good to go back over and... Uh, It's actually really timely, I think, as well, as we go into Easter. This passage is wonderfully rich for us as we, uh, you know, today, traditionally in the church calendar is Palm Sunday. You can probably see some palms. I didn't even know that. They just fell from the sky. Um, uh, But uh, Palm Sunday is that day, right, where the the Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, triumphantly rides into the city of Jerusalem uh, just days before he's going to lay his life down for the sins of the world. And... uh, crowd are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Those same people who are crying out in joy as he comes in are the same people, actually, like all of us who stand at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus and uh, not loving him. And uh, only by grace uh, were those and like us saved. And so we're going to think a bit about this passage um, in the lead up to Easter tonight. I think, I hope, I pray, I've been praying about this, that it will actually really shape us for this week as we head up to Good Friday and then to Easter Sunday. So let me pray again, and we're going to tuck into this word. Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we do join with the psalmist, we join with the gospel writers who recorded these great words for us. We do want to be people tonight who cry out these things genuinely because we've met Jesus. We want to be people who can say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, who's come to save us and rescue us and transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so we pray tonight, Father, as we look at your word, as we study it together in the power of your spirit, 
We pray that, Father, we would see Jesus tonight. We pray, Father, that we would hear Jesus tonight. And we pray, Father, that we would all leave here loving Jesus tonight uh, and crying out his name with joy and uh, longing to see him face to face. So please do a great work in us tonight. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, life can be a bit frustrating, can't it? I was chatting with some friends in the past week about sort of frustrations in life, um, you know, big things, small things, just things which kind of irritate us and rock our world a little bit. I don't know if you find yourself discussing frustrations and things like that from time to time. Um, the frustrations mostly that we were talking about were actually frustrations that are caused by kind of things that are out of our control. Um, you know, so there's just those stuff. You know, when you have a desire to do something, but you can't do it because something else has frustrated it. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking about. You know, when people just oppose your desires. Um, we're new homeowners, and uh, we haven't had this happen to us yet, but someone, one of the guys was saying, oh, yeah, our neighbours have just built an extension next door, and now we have shadows all over our backyard, and our view has been blocked. They were kind of frustrated by that. Um, you know, a colleague's success, right, comes at your expense. That frustrates you. Um, I don't know about you, there are, there are needy people in our lives who kind of sap energy and sap our time and things like that and prevent us from meeting up with people we really want to see and spend time doing things that we really want to do. Um, life is frustrating when some of our desires are kind of, well, kind of cut in on. When you know it's like an accident or when you know it's just sort of incidental, you kind of let it just rush off, like brush off your back, right? Like duck off a back's water, water off a duck's back, there you go. Um, yeah, you know, it just doesn't really impact you. You move on. But what do you do when it's not accidental? How do you feel when those people around you aren't just disloyal, but they actively betray you? Those who break your confidence in order to enhance their own kind of career. You know, the colleague who, who promises to support you as you push forward in this new venture, this new job within the company, but then they go behind your back and tell the boss, I actually don't think they're going to be really good at that job. Or the husband who belittles his wife in public when he's called to love his wife like Christ loves the church. How do you feel when, when, when people around you kind of brutalise you, maybe not like physically brutalise you, but like emotionally or verbally, who speak words about you that really hurt? In short, how do you deal with your enemies? How do you deal with your enemies? We like to think, don't we, that we don't have any enemies, um, but the reality is there are people out there, right? People whose desires don't clash with us, but they simply desire to clash with you, like they just want to clash. How do you deal with them? More importantly, how does Christ deal with his enemies? We come to his word again, we come to Acts 9 again tonight, and I hope, we, hope you've come to church ready to learn, and, and you've come humbly. Because at one time, all of us stood as enemies of Christ. Acts 9 gives us a remarkable insight into how Jesus deals with his enemies. Teaches us and I hope transforms how we deal with our enemies as God's people living in this place. See, Acts 9, right, features Saul. If you were here last week, we thought a lot about this guy, Saul. Um, he's an enemy of Christ. We first met Saul when he was at the stoning of Stephen, Acts 7, verse 58 through to 8, 3. He's there, Saul, he's pictured on the right there, holding kind of the coats. He's basically affirming, kind of going, yep, I'm all for this. Keep hurling the stones at Stephen. 
Stephen, right? He was speaking about the risen Lord Jesus. And what he was basically saying is the old way of doing things, the temple and the law and lots of stuff, that's gone. You can now have a full relationship with God through faith in Jesus who is alive and dealt with your sins. Saul understood exactly what Stephen was saying. Saul and the others were wedded to the old way. They were bent on eradicating the new, determined to wipe out Jesus, to wipe out you know, the church, to preserve the old ways of doing things, their status, their position in society. So Acts chapter 3, Saul sets about ravaging the church. Stephen's dead. He sets about ravaging the church. Um, and, and he's gone from door to door, arresting men and women and throwing them in prison downtown Jerusalem. The word ravage, right, that is used in the text by Luke, kind of is akin to like a, a wild beast. If you, you know, turn up later on, Psalm 80, you'll, you'll kind of meet this wild boar who's ravaging and running through vineyards, just destroying everything without consideration. That's the word. Saul is just obsessed with putting an end to the church, all these followers of Jesus. He wants the name of Jesus kind of wiped off the face of planet Earth. The trouble is, right, it had the reverse effect. Chapter 8, verse 4, the church is scattered, and so the gospel spreads. It's quite remarkable. However, you then wind forward a bit to Acts chapter 9, verse 1, where we started tonight, and Saul is still breathing out murderous threats. He's so obsessed. He's organised papers, right, from the high priest in Jerusalem. Can I, can I go and do what I'm doing here in Jerusalem in other cities like Damascus? Can I do that? And so he's organised to hunt down believers. If there was ever an enemy of Christ, it was Saul. But in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus himself, the risen Jesus, meets Saul on the road to Damascus and interrogates him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at one level, Jesus' words there are beautiful, right? Because he identifies with us if you're a Christian here tonight. He says, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with us, the church that he saved, so kind of beautifully and intimately. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? You hurt Jesus, you hurt Christians. But at the same time, he does link Saul to a whole line of persecutors that have come before him and ultimately a bunch of people who put Jesus to death. Saul's in a line of persecutors. Saul is Jesus' enemy. So how does Jesus deal with his enemy? How, how does the way Jesus deal with his enemy shape how you and I, as his followers, as his apprentices, shape how we'll deal with ours? Two points today, two points. Here they are. One, Christ, it's like one point, but it's two, actually. There you go. Christ's grace overcomes his enemies. And secondly, Christ's grace overcomes our enemies. That's what we're thinking about tonight. Two points. So firstly, Christ's grace overcomes his enemies enemy. Saul wanted to crush the church. He wanted to wipe out Jesus. But Jesus confronts him, overcomes him, and welcomes him, and gives him a key role in his kingdom. Jesus overcomes Saul with his mercy and his grace. It's grace because it's undeserved. So evident. Saul was there, like, ruthlessly persecuting and ravaging Jesus' church. Saul's problem, right, wasn't that he was, like, horribly immoral or grossly immoral of a kind of man. He was actually really respected by people. He was exceptionally righteous in conjunction with what he believed. 
His problem was that he was just willfully ignorant of God. Saul knew the claims of Jesus. He lived an upright, righteous life as a Jew, but he refused to acknowledge the risen Lord Jesus. His actions, right, would have won him heaps of credit with the, you know, the powers of the day, particularly the religious leaders. But get this, he had no merit with the holy God. Zero. Before God, he was simply an arrogant opponent who deserved to be crushed. And yet he finds grace. It's grace, not only because it's undeserved, it's grace because it's entirely the work of God. It's irresistible grace. Right, just track with me really quickly. Acts chapter 9, verse 3, Saul is stopped in his tracks by what? This blinding light, brighter than the sun. He's knocked off his horse as he's riding into Damascus to persecute the church. Bam, down, all over, he's gone. 9.4, it's Jesus, right, who initiates the conversation. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In verse 6, it's Jesus, and so Saul's blind, right, at this point. It's Jesus who directs Saul to his next move. He's led blind, helpless, hopelessly into Damascus. Ananias, he does the healing. The emphasis, right, is on this. Saul does nothing. Nothing. In 9.10, it's Jesus who arranges for Ananias, this disciple of Jesus living in Damascus, to turn up and to kind of lay his hands on so the Holy Spirit can come and his eyes are healed, the scales drop. All the way through, Saul is just poked and prodded and pulled around. In fact, if you have a look at the text, from verse 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 5, he doesn't say a word. It's silent. There's no testimony from Paul, right? He doesn't stand up and say, oh, what joy, I found Jesus on the road to Damascus. He doesn't stand up and say, I found Jesus today, I've made a decision to follow Christ. I follow Christ. No. When Paul, later on, he's recounting this episode before this guy named King Agrippa, we get a little bit more detail. Um, he, we find out a little bit extra. Here's, I think it's on the screen. Acts 26, verse 13. About noon, King Agrippa... As I was on the road, Damascus, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we don't use the word goads very often anymore, right? But what that means is Saul had been goaded again and again and again to follow Jesus, but he'd resisted. He'd heard of Jesus heaps of times and yet still went on resisting, but now he can resist no more. Saul's rallied against the claims of Jesus, saying, no, he's not alive, but on the Damascus road, who does he bump into? Well, he bumps into him, the risen Christ. And he simply couldn't resist the beauty, the compelling majesty of Jesus. The grace, it's grace, right? Because Saul makes... Zero contribution. It's entirely the work of Jesus. His compelling, unavoidable, irresistible work. You know, people coming to know Jesus, right? People coming to know Jesus isn't always kind of connected with kind of great joy and relief. I don't know, maybe your testimony is that, you know, you, you, you found joy, you found relief, but it's not always the case. For others, it's, it's possible, right, for some people just to, they, they simply can no longer avoid living the way of Jesus. I have a bit of an Anglican background, Church of England, you know, frozen, chosen, you know, sort of thing. Um, 
And uh, um, the Anglican Church is built uh, around the, the Scriptures and around the Lord Jesus, but we have these things called the, they had the 39 Articles of the Christian Faith, Church of England. In one of them, it's, it's number 17, it speaks of how God elects some to salvation and describes it like this, to be called according to God's purpose by his spirit, working in due season. They, through grace, obey the calling. They, through grace, obey the calling. That, this, that's Saul, right? He didn't really want to follow Jesus, but he could do nothing else but follow Jesus. Um, C.S. Lewis, we talked a bit about C.S. Lewis last week, how he was a real, you know, didn't always follow Jesus. Um, but he writes about his own conversion as simply accepting the inevitable. Um, to quote from his book, um, Surprised by Joy, it's coming up on the screen. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, hit again. He goes, this is C.S. Lewis. I gave in. I admitted that God was God, so I knelt and prayed, and perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Isn't that wonderful? He's just overwhelmed by grace, irresistible grace. Our next photo on the slide. This guy on the right is a really good friend of mine, Dave. Um, I saw him come to know Jesus. Um, he's a really good guy. Uh, Dave had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home uh, all his life, very solid Christian home. But as he was growing up, he turned his back on God and uh, he lived, without going into detail, he lived a wild and wasteful life. Um, he partied hard. He treated others really selfishly. Um, all the while, right, he knew that Jesus was there. And one night, everything just got way too much for him. And so he knelt down beside his bed and prayed and accepted Jesus. Um, he caved in. He could no longer escape just the beauty and the majesty and the mercy of Christ. Um, wonderfully, uh, Dave's now uh, gone over to Ireland, to Belfast, and he's planted a church there, and it's going great guns. Um, it's so great. Um, but like Dave, and like C.S. Lewis, and like Saul, right, it's Jesus who did it all. He would say that. It's irresistible grace. He didn't want it, but grace does what is best for people, not simply what we want. How does Jesus treat his enemy? He overwhelms him with his grace. He does it all. And it's grace, right? Because Jesus accepts him without reservation. Jesus doesn't have, you know, save Saul by grace and then say, well, I'm just going to leave you on the fringe for a little while because, quite frankly, Saul, you've got a past. It wasn't this sort of half-hearted forgiveness, right, where he's on Jesus' team, but the record of his past track record, you know, keeps getting brought up all the time just to remind him of the kind of dirt bag that he was, you know. Now, this is wholehearted forgiveness, so a welcome back, an invitation to be right at the centre of all that Jesus is doing. His identity is radically changed. He's gone from being the persecutor of the name of Jesus to then in verse 16, a sufferer for the name of Jesus. His identity is now completely bound up with Christ. And so complete and all-encompassing is the welcome of Jesus. We see that Jesus gives his chief enemy, Saul, a vital role in the kingdom growing. So chapter 9, verse 15, I think it's up here. Yeah, He's, Jesus says this, This man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name, my name to the Gentiles, literally the nations everywhere but Israel and their kings and to the people of Israel. 
Saul's going to do what Psalm 102 promised so many hundreds of years before. There was kind of a sneaky reason for me getting you to stand up and say Psalm 102. It wasn't just because ancient people did it. It's because I wanted you to hear those words. Psalm 102 verse 15 speaks of this moment when the nations of the world would come to fear the Lord and where the kings would revere and glory in him as well. And so then you see a bit further on in chapter 9, verse 20 of this book, like you see Saul preaching in Damascus. The town he travelled with an intention to persecute, he's now loving people and leading them to Christ. He gets driven out of town, he spends some years away in Arabia, but then he comes back, chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, he's in Jerusalem, he's speaking and debating with the Grecian Jews about Jesus. It's incredible. So in the unfolding plan of God and of salvation, in getting the message of the good news of Jesus out to the ends of the earth, God isn't restricted in only using people who are already on his team. God takes his enemy and graciously and mercifully invites him into the very heart of all that he's doing. Without reservation, Saul comes in. How does Jesus deal with his enemy? Jesus overwhelms him with his grace. Saul deserved wrath and judgment, eternal separation from his creator. And yet he gets back in and he's lavished with the love of Christ. It's mercy, it's irresistible grace, an open invitation, a welcome back. And brothers and sisters, that's got to give us confidence, right? We talked a bit about this last week. I feel like we should, I forget this all the time. It's got to give us confidence, firstly for ourselves, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, you can be welcomed back by grace. Saul, who later becomes Paul and writes a whole bunch of the New Testament, wrote to a little church in Colossae and he said these words. Once, this is, he's, he's, you know, he's, right, he's just speaking to garden variety, ordinary Christians living in downtown Colossae. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. That is, we've all done things, said things, thought things that, that we would be too ashamed to tell other people. Things... You know, you keep to yourself that you would never tell to anyone and you probably would not even... It's too painful even to confess it to God, even though you know he knows everything. I turned 40 on Friday. I don't look it, do I? Yeah, I turned 40 on Friday. I think um, Facebook decided to say happy birthday to me, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and all his mates. You get these flashbacks of your life and things like that, this little montage of your life, and it's all the really good bits. You know, how young I used to look, how athletic I once was, you know, all this sort of stuff. But imagine if, like, Mark Zuckerberg just decided to kind of just somehow grab all your thoughts and then just sort of compile it into a little Facebook video and just without you knowing about it, splash it out across to all your friends. I mean, maybe you're lucky you don't have any friends on Facebook, I don't know. But, um, but imagine that. Or YouTube, right? And we just sort of played Jacko's thoughts of his mind and heart. I would run to Damascus, right? <laughs> like, it would be terrifying. But like, one of the big things that Jesus does is he overwhelms his enemies with his grace and mercy and love. 
Despite the fact that he knows everything about me and everything about you, he, and we were once enemies, he does this. Colossians continues. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's how Jesus treats his enemies. Take confidence from how Jesus treats his enemies. No matter what you've done, you can be welcomed home, back into God's family, back into relationship with him by grace through faith in Jesus. But have confidence as well for even your most hardened friends or family members or colleagues. Let me just think for a moment about that person that you might see at Easter, the person you're dreading seeing at Christmas. I don't know. A person who's just, you go, they're just so far from Christ, I can't imagine them ever turning and loving and serving the living Lord Jesus. Just bring them to mind. Grace can overcome. Paul will write just towards the end of his life, we talked about this last week, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying deserving of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom he says, I am the foremost And then he goes on to say, and Jesus did it this way, God did it this way, just to show that I would be a display of God's incredible grace, patience and mercy. If the Lord can have mercy on a man like Saul of Tarsus, then there's hope for people like C.S. Lewis, hope for people like my mate Dave, there's hope for your friends, your family members, your colleagues. We can keep praying for those people who seem just so far off. For 15 years, I was saved about 20-odd years ago. For 15 years, I've been keeping a list of people who are on a prayer list who I continue to pray for um, regularly, people I've met who don't yet follow Jesus. Not every single person I've met doesn't follow Jesus, but a whole bunch. I may not see many of them ever again. I may not be for them, but I pray for them. Some of the people on the list are people who I've had really excellent gospel conversations with who haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus. Some people on the list who I'm like, I can never imagine talking to them about Jesus ever. They are just so intense. But I pray for them because Saul encourages me. I'm not sure that God will save them, but I know that he could. You see, Jesus has enemies. And remarkably, he chooses to overwhelm them with his grace. He invites them in. He embraces them. He welcomes them into his family. And that ought to transform how we, how we deal with our opponents, how we deal with our enemies. Second, you'll be thankful, the shorter point tonight. Christ's grace overcomes our enemies. You see, Acts chapter 9 isn't just about how Jesus saves Saul or how Saul gets commissioned. They're big things, right? It's also about how God welcomes the chief of sinners into the fellowship of his people. It's all about his people learning how to forgive their enemies. As this church grows and develops and is shaped, it's actually how do we learn from how Jesus does things like this? So we know how to live as God's people in this world, how we can be a church that changes the world under Christ. Speaks about how grace can overcome and overwhelm our enemies. I mean, you you know, you might have picked up from last week, and even as we read it tonight, Ananias, this disciple who's in Damascus, who, who knows that Saul is on his way to kind of persecute and do all that he's been doing back in Jerusalem, hurting people, rounding people up, throwing them into prison. Ananias hears that Saul's coming, and he's scared for good reason, right? Saul's got a reputation. Ananias knows what Paul has been up, Saul's been up to, what his plans are for Damascus. 
But Christ speaks to him, right? And then chapter 9, verse 16 assures him, don't worry, Christ, uh, Saul is going to suffer for my name. And so in chapter 9, verse 17, when Ananias meets Saul, what's the first thing he says to him? Brother. Brother. Saul. Ananias gets grace, right? The grace of Christ that overcomes an enemy. It's really hard to believe, but even after Saul starts preaching publicly, the broader church actually is a little bit sceptical about him, right? So when he comes into Jerusalem, do they, you know, Saul comes in, you know, he's been preaching everywhere, he gets back three years later, you know, when he gets up, do they say, oh, great, Saul, we're looking for a great headline preacher for the Acts 29 conference coming up. Do they say that? No. Oh, wouldn't it be great to hear his testimony? No, they're like, Saul? But in... 26, when they find out, you know, they, they, they can't quite believe that this is a disciple of Jesus. Barnabas, though, has a word and, and tells them of Saul's overwhelming experience of grace on the Damascus road. This guy Barnabas, he gets grace. He knows the power of grace to transform, transform even the most wretched of all sinners. He grasps what grace can do to our relationships. Grace actually enables us to overcome fear and find fellowship with each other. Grace can overcome our enemies. Now, of course, some hurts that people inflict on us cannot be just overlooked. Um, I mean, you know, you don't demand an apology, right, when someone just sort of, I don't know, is just a little bit annoying or they accidentally slight you. You don't sort of go, right... Get up the front and, you know, like, you know, you don't demand that. You just let it go through. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's neither right nor possible to overlook what people have done. Willful betrayal and disloyalty. Acts of, acts or words of brutality and violence. You can't just overlook that. It's not right to. As one person put it, there is a moral hindrance to fellowship because of what has been done. That is, it would be immoral, it would be wrong to pretend that something hadn't happened. But grace can overcome what can't be overlooked. Grace can overcome what cannot be overlooked. The grace of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ removes that barrier of moral hindrance. Because of Jesus' once-for-all death on the cross, the sins of all who trust in him are paid for. Yes, there might be an appropriate sort of apology required, restitution or even compensation for the wrongs that have been done, but we can no longer morally hold back forgiveness to other people whom Jesus has forgiven. We don't overlook hurts, but to continue to live in fear or avoidance of forgiven sinners is actually to overlook the cross. And that's what Ananias grasped. That's what Barnabas got. And it's what a woman named Corrie ten Boom understood. Uh, this is Corrie ten Boom. Uh, she was a Dutch Christian woman. Um, she was sent to a Nazi concentration camp um, because she was um, harboring Jews in World War II in her home. She was protecting them. She was liberated from the death camp at Ravensbrück when the Allies came in. Um, but she, she reflects on right how even though she was liberated, she, she still felt that she was a prisoner of her hate for heaps of years. Um, Corrie 
Ten Boom, she knew the gospel really well. She lived in Europe. She knew that if Europe was really, truly going to heal, that it needed to know the forgiveness that only comes in Christ. And so she used to preach it, right? She used to preach it publicly. And one day she was preaching in Munich, in Berlin, uh, in Germany. Um, After the service, a man walked up to her, uh, put out his hand and said this, I am so glad Jesus forgives us all our sins, as you say. Immediately... She recognised the guy. She recognised that he was one of the guards at Ravensbrook. And in particular, he was one of the most brutal and dehumanising of all the guards at Ravensbrook. And she froze. And she realised she couldn't forgive. And, And she talks about how she prayed this. She said, I can't forgive this man, so Lord, please forgive me. God answered her prayer. She later wrote this. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner should say, I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So the power of grace, the power of the gospel, isn't simply there just to make enemies like you and I right with God again, forgiven, and now on a trajectory to the new creation. That's one beautiful result of the grace of the gospel. But the grace of the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ also has the power to undo the enemy status between one another. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus... um, talks about this gracious king who cancelled this multi-million dollar kind of debt to one of his servants and then that servant goes away and then demands a few measly dollars from another particular servant. Jesus finishes the story like this. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you, uh, treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. You see, you cannot remain enemies with someone Christ has forgiven. Grace doesn't allow it. I don't know, there's many sadnesses in the world, but I think there's nothing sadder than when A Christian person denies full fellowship to another person because they're withholding forgiveness from that person at some level. I've I've served in churches where people refuse to be in a Bible study, or now for me it's DG land, right? Like where they've refused to be in a Bible study with someone because they've they're enemies. They've they're not forgiving each other. I've actually seen believers unwilling to sit in different parts of the church. You know, at times, because they they just want to avoid people or they just don't go to events they know that people are going to, fellow Christians. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. Why? Because that hanging on to fear and hanging on to grudges is actually a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of the cross. It's a denial of grace. It's a denial of what Jesus has done. 
And I actually think it's a really timely thing that we're in Acts chapter 9 tonight thinking about this as we come up to Good Friday, uh, to Easter Sunday, to Easter in general. I don't know, maybe some of us tonight, you know, we've, we've, we've grasped the grace of God, we know we've been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, but maybe, maybe this week one of the things you can do in the lead up to Easter is restore some relationships by forgiving other people. It's hard. It's really hard, but it's really important. If our welcome, if our forgiveness of enemies is any less than Christ, then I think we've perhaps misunderstood that we are but debtors to the grace of God. Because Jesus has brought us together. The reason we pursue relationships like this is partly because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus, right? That's a, a massive reason to do it. But it's also right because it's one of the main ways the world will see who Jesus is. One of the great things about the gospel is that Jesus brings together people who otherwise would not want to hang out with each other. Enemies. Don Carson, right, he writes this beautiful thing in The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, I think it is. He basically says that when you go to church, right, Christians, we're not natural friends. We're actually natural enemies. But brought together by the grace and love of Christ, the, the blood that was shed for us, that's what unites us. Now, I'm looking at you guys tonight, right? I'm thinking you're a beautiful bunch of people. But if we boil it down, right, we were, we were enemies. Enemies of God, enemies of each other, but we've been brought together. And I think Easter is a wonderful time to remember that's, that's really significant. And I want to exhort you if, you, if you do have enemies, maybe one way to worship the Lord Jesus Christ this week is to sort some stuff out. You don't have to tell everyone, but I think that'll just honour Jesus. How do we deal with our enemies? The way Jesus did. Overcoming them with his grace. But I know for many of us, it's that grace that is at work in us. Let me pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We thank you for bringing us together tonight uh, to hear this word, to sit under your word. Father, it's humbling to be reminded that we were your enemies. It's I guess it's somewhat easy to look at Saul and he's out there at a distance and he looks particularly awful and heinous and we go, well, I'm nothing like that. But we were. We were enemies of you. It's only by your grace that we've been brought near. Father, I pray, Father, for those of us here tonight, Father, who, I mean, we all have enemies of different kinds, but Father, may we, as we approach this Easter week, Remember your incredible grace towards us. And so, Father, we pray, given that you have forgiven the inexcusable in us, Father, may we be men and women who are willing to forgive the inexcusable in others and therefore be like Jesus. And so, Father, we pray, by your Spirit, we can't do it on our own, we need you, so please, by your Spirit, help us Father, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.